to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is episode number six It's called From My Toolbox. Last time, I spoke to you about being lucky, about living in a state of grace. I think today's presentation will help you better experience Creator's intent. That is, in order to survive and prosper, we human beings are supposed to invest in our capital value. That is, we are to develop our structural capital, defined as our talents and abilities, our client capital, or our relationships, and our creative capital, our unique approach. I explained all of this in episode number two. Evolution means learning to adapt to changes in condition, learning to thrive. Folks, these jungle times include fake news, selfish views, and all kinds of social unrest. But if there's an upside to this COVID-19 pandemic we're all going through, It's that an increased number of us now recognize the values that make life worth living. We can clearly see how value comes from investing in a more creative attitude. The rest of it, keeping up with the Joneses, the Kardashians, or the Trumps, is folly. It's mere fluff. You are your own prime resource. You have value. A lot of us have already changed our priorities to give more time and energy to those things that matter. Simultaneously, though, others are struggling with the change this pandemic has imposed. Fear, anger, protest are the order of the day. Whether you fear for your life because of this invisible COVID-19 enemy, or you shrug it all off with indifference, your reaction to the crisis largely depends on your capacity to deal with anxiety and stress. A study conducted by the KGB in 1962 discovered that when people are continuously bombarded with fear-inducing messages for as few as two months, they accept the fear and hold fast to it even when the threat is removed. Fear is more than a troublesome emotion. It is what links our patterns of behavior. As such, it must be understood and overcome. As the pandemic spread around the world, its threat brought our fear reactions into full view. Some people stocked up on hand sanitizers, canceled travel plans, and took several other precautions. Others accepted the risk with little regard for themselves or others, believing that whatever happens will happen. We are creatures of habit, and our usual ways of reacting are manifesting themselves. They have little to do with the threat that we imagine. This danger is different from others and more predictable threats because there is no way to avoid it or to anticipate its outcome if you get contaminated. The virus is a mutant strain. 
Not only is it airborne, it carries genetic keys that can unlock various human systems, our respiratory, cardiopulmonary, and neurological systems, and more. For this reason, how it can affect you is not predictable. Now, I know that many of you are already fed up hearing about it, but whether you have ways of remaining vigilant without fear, or you tend to panic at the slightest stiffle, or even deny the danger because it's too painful to think about, doesn't alter how you can profit from this presentation. Rather than react to events and circumstances, you can be creative and face the danger, if you have enough courage and the right tools. So first, let me share what I learned about courage, and then I'll tell you about four tools I've really profited from and for many years. They're the best ways to deal with change, anxiety, and stress, and they'll make living and thriving in these jungle times much easier. To reach the higher magnitudes of love that I told you about last time, you need courage. The first thing you should know is that courage does not mean an absence of fear. Only psychotics don't feel fear. Having courage means continuing on the path of your heart in spite of fear. And that makes perfect sense if you realize that the word courage comes from the old French word cœur, which means heart. We develop courage by remaining on the path of the heart. Of course, this implies acting with love no matter what the challenge, no matter the hardship or the disability, no matter what conditions or costs that impede you, if you remain on the path of your heart, you'll acquire courage. In order to acquire personal power, though, you must explore the four kinds of courage that American psychologist Rollo May calls physical, moral, social, and creative courage. Considering everything I've been through, my accident, my death experiences, weeks on a respirator, months in hospitals, years of paralysis, financial destitution, and all the rest, so many people have told me that I must have a lot of courage. I happen to know that my only motivation through it all was love. After I left the ICU, doctors and nurses wanted to know why I was still alive. The answer I gave them is this. My daughter is only six years old and for her to live her life without a father is out of the question. I'm prepared to go through whatever it takes to see her again. I told everyone that my love for my little girl brought me back from the dead. But I'll add this to my reflection on courage. A few years ago, with my life partner Susie, I was preparing for an adventure where I'd drive a jeep from Montreal, Canada to Panama, Central America. Because several of the areas we'd cross were troubled with violent conflicts, Susie, being a rather small woman, and me, confined to a wheelchair, everyone asked the same question when I mentioned our plans. Aren't you afraid? I gave them all the same answer. The worst thing that can happen is we'll die. A trip like this has been on our bucket list for a long time, and we intend to meet every situation with love and creative intelligence. If we die doing that, well then, can we ask for a better death? What can be better than doing exactly what you love at the moment that inevitable event occurs? Death will happen anyway, and we have no idea when, do we? I know that love is a greater pull than fear. Fear should not stop you even if danger does exist. 
For this particular adventure, we learn the best routes to travel, the best border crossings, and how to best be prepared for any contingency. We took 18 days to drive that distance, and I must say, it was the best vacation we ever had. So, here's what I learned about courage. It requires that you understand fear. Our autonomic nervous system is the primary mechanism that controls the body's reaction to fear. In the last episode, I explained how mood is mediated by our endocrine glands. When we are stimulated to action, our sympathetic nervous system prepares the body for its reactions by activating the glands of the endocrine immune system. After, our parasympathetic system calms the body down by slowing the heart and breathing, allowing it to recover from the activities that the sympathetic system responded to. The two systems seem to oppose each other, but the sympathetic acts like the accelerator in a car, and the parasympathetic is like the brake. So, in fact, they complement each other. Unless you are tested in real-life situations, though, you can't learn how to master your body's responses. Will you fight or flight, or rest and digest? I don't think most people know how to relax when they need to. To experience the fight-or-flight response is stressful and oftentimes so uncomfortable that many people try to avoid it, and so they'll suffer miserably whenever they cower away. As soon as you understand that the body experiences physical stress when it accelerates into the fight-or-flight response, you'll want to learn how to engage your parasympathetic break. I heard the story of identical twins who grew up playing hockey. They were both very good at it. And because they were big boys, when they reached the minor leagues, the coaches decided they'd be better off if they played defense. Soon after, one of the brothers quit, but the other went on to have a career in the major leagues. Later in life, talking things through, one twin remarked that the reason he had quit hockey was because he knew that, as a defenseman, he'd have to fight, and that he'd been afraid. His brother asked him how he knew he was afraid and he answered with a description of the butterflies the twin got in his stomach whenever he faced an opponent. His brother replied, Oh, is that what you call fear? I always thought that feeling was a signal to hit the other guy. Fear is less the situation you are facing and more your perception of it. I tell people they'd profit enormously by practicing a breathing technique that allows the body's relaxation reaction to kick in. They'd profit to learn how to calm their spirit. I suggest people practice yoga or any other meditation technique. Learn to master your moods. The body's physical stress levels can be mitigated if you can focus your energy. We describe our moods by saying our energy in motion or our emotion is high or low, that we are up or down. The clinical diagnosis is called a bipolar disorder. That is, we'll say he is manic, depressive. Author of the book Courage to Create, Dr. May explains how acquiring personal power begins with the development of physical courage. He says physical courage is less the adrenaline-filled bravado we see in those shoot-em-up movies on the big screen, and rather it's the heartfelt persistence of apparent who sacrifices to provide for his family. To sacrifice like that, no matter what the hardship or challenge, 
and this day after day for months and years develops physical courage. It's akin to a child falling off a bicycle, scraping his or her knee, and then setting aside the pain to climb back onto that bike. In other words, physical courage means surviving in spite of the hardship while remaining true to the path of your heart. May then explains moral courage as the power to fix wrongs that need fixing. In my case, I developed my moral courage by advocating for the rights of disabled persons. But whatever your cause, you'll acquire moral courage by taking a stance for what is right and just. Moral courage recognizes that the only requirement for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. In some places, the social system is broken. In others, racial inequalities require serious fixing. If you give yourself wholeheartedly to any cause, that struggle will allow you to acquire moral courage. I mentioned that we are surrounded by bad people who behave like predators and by stupid people who are akin to parasites, and so our world needs all the help that we can give it. Pick any cause, and even if you don't have a specific alliance to it, commit to random acts of kindness on its behalf. Do good so that you will reap moral courage. You'll find that you can easily acquire social courage via volunteerism. As I got involved politically to assert the rights of disabled persons to accessible goods and services, I met many like-minded people. I started at the local level, but was soon invited to sit on regional, national, and international boards. I've often changed hat over the years, working for different issues on a variety of venues. I'll testify it hasn't always been easy, but I did develop a strong moral compass that has guided me well over the years. I also learned to present coherent arguments, to negotiate intelligently, and to persuade others to change their mind. I put all those skills to use for the organizations I was involved with, and I know that it empowered me in the process. The disability rights movement made great social strides over the years, and, of course, I worked with altruistic self-interest, so I continued to profit from all those changes myself. After all, I'm still paralyzed and bound to a wheelchair all these many years later. I learned a lot about people. I realized that social courage means developing the skills needed to forge the relationships I want with others. It also means taking my rightful place in society. Activism is often met with resistance, of course. That goes without saying. But I discovered that society is not a single block of resistance. Society's rules are maintained by affinity groups, and these are composed of smaller niches of people, and those niches are tinier collections of individuals. To deal with individuals, you must treat them as you would like to be treated yourself. In time, you learn how to relate to each person in a way that benefits him or her while still advancing your own cause. You solicit cooperation by focusing on common interests and mutual gains. You might have to assert yourself on occasion, but remember, how you do it is what you're doing. Anger begets anger. Violence attracts violence, etc. But if you make it a point to treat people kindly, you will more easily negotiate differences of opinion, patience, and coherent arguments win the day. I've met people over the years who, for whatever reason their agenda, tried to dismiss my rights 
or those of the cause I was defending. I only needed to snarl a few times in a few octaves louder than my normal tone. What works best when dealing with others is to explain why your proposal is in their interest too. If you list the advantages to them in what you are proposing, you can more easily find allies who share your concerns and will buy into your ideas. Developing my social courage allowed me to acquire personal power. Besides allowing you to build richer, fuller relationships, personal power comes in handy when you decide to explore creative courage. That's the kind of courage needed to examine your own life, your behavior, habits, and expectations, so you can change those things that need changing. In my case, my second chance at life began with a simple question. What is wrong with me that I nearly ended my life by hitting a metal pole at 70 miles an hour? And then, more importantly, I asked myself, what must I do to avoid that kind of pain ever again? One day, lost in a meditation, I remembered a passage from a novel I'd read that had struck me. The book was called A Place of Coolness, and it was about a man looking for his brother. At the tale's conclusion, he finds him in a monastery. The brother tells him that he'd been searching for a meaning in his life and that a place of coolness was needed to feel secure enough to venture within. I was struck by that idea as an adequate explanation on why to develop my creative courage. I was stopped by a car accident that forced me to wake up and smell the coffee. I learned the hard way that life is very fragile. But the most important lesson I learned in my incredible ordeal was that love is God's law, and no one is above the law. I ventured within to discover what that meant for me. So, my question to you is this. Regardless of your beliefs, have you taken responsibility for your place in the world? Universe is limitless energy and motion. Its action-reaction law has determined that we must love without condition. Have you adjusted? Do you love yourself enough to recognize that loving others is not only good for them, it's good for you as well? Love is Creator's law. In my last presentation, I explained that if you incorporate love at magnitude 3 into your life, that is, love is self-esteem, then you'll accumulate the experience to know that love is the foundation of social law. When you see love as the law of life, then you can start being lucky. Then you'll approach any situation from the perspective that love is an unconditional law, so you can quickly see who else is playing the game of life in that way, or not. Then you can adjust. Think about it. People come together in order to prosper, this we know. Deals are made, partnerships can be agreed to, but when self-esteem exists, love can genuinely be shared and trust can be developed. Self-esteem is what allows us to avoid being the prey in that jungle out there. If the focus is common interest for mutual gains, we can prosper with friends. After all, who do you trust? Strangers? Enemies? Life teaches us to be cautious whenever there's money on the table. That's when greed shows its ugly face and conspiracy and collusion easily ferment. Again, creative courage will guide us through those murky waters. We become mature adults when we learn that the only way to overcome negativity is with more positive. When a relationship is based on love, it will redefine the individuals involved 
and their destiny. At magnitude five, you discover that love is magic by allowing you to co-create with your state of paradise on earth. Creator's intent allows us to co-create and to benefit from the reactions of cosmos. Do what you love and let God take care of the details. I'll be right back to share four important tools from my toolbox. In the last episode, called Love is Magic, I mentioned that when I discovered how the glands of my endocrine immune system shaped my moods, I jotted down the names of those glands in a notebook. I wanted to chart how moods affected my mind. Keeping that journal was my first self-empowerment tool. Now, I always carry a notebook to jot down my thoughts and ideas, and I still have the notes I kept 40 years ago. When I left the hospital after my car accident, I started to research my out-of-body experiences, trying to figure out what it all meant. I had to sort out my mind. I was surprised to learn that my death experiences were fairly common, because medicine is bringing more and more people back from the dead. All kinds of folks report the same kinds of things that I experienced. From physics to metaphysics, my research introduced me to a lot of material. I had to sift through a whole lot of information. I quickly realized that the various authors shared their personal memories, studies, and opinions. So I used my notebook to track the wheat and sort it from the chaff. I wasn't interested in what others experienced. I wanted to know what God wanted from me. Why was I back from the dead? And several times. My notebook soon became what magicians call a grimoire. From the old French word, a grimoire refers to a system of glyphs, sigils, and codes used by researchers to note their findings. In the olden days, most people believed that reading and writing were magical. We still have the notebooks kept by the great thinkers of those days, those men and women from times past like King Solomon or John Dee, like Leonardo da Vinci or Sir Francis Bacon, or think of the diaries of Hildegard of Bingen and Anne Frank. Many other writings from the past also demonstrate the power available by keeping a journal. Great thinkers often keep a notebook handy because they know that ideas are very subtle, and if not recorded in the moments after they appear, they evaporate into the vapes of time. Creative people, therefore, learn to think with a paper and pencil. Doreen Clement, author of The Five-Year Journal, describes her technique of keeping a journal to glean wisdom from her observations. She tells us, writing to express yourself can heal you. It can focus, support, and enhance your life and your well-being. Whether you laugh or cry, whether you write from sorrow or joy, you will understand more about yourself and consequently about others by keeping a journal. I totally agree. I always suggest purchasing a good quality notebook one with ruled pages and a hard cover, or get a good sketch pad from an art supply store, but do buy something you'll be happy to use at every opportunity. Have a pen or pencil attached to it so you can record ideas and observations as soon as they emerge. Actively seek out inspiration. If you're at all stressed, take a long walk in nature first. As you do, stop every few hundred paces 
and take a slow look around. Note what seems right and what seems odd or out of place. Start becoming aware of your inner dialogue and note that innovative breakthroughs appear at the edges of your observation. As soon as you find the gist of an idea, jot it down. Build on it over time. Question it and force it to reveal itself. Whatever you record can, in time, mature into a blockbuster concept. Contemplate it for deeper meaning or significance and watch it evolve. The benefits of keeping a grimoire include the facts that it's an effective self-management tool. It helps you set and keep goals. It reduces your stress by keeping your priority lists. It organizes ideas into full-blown concepts. It'll let you observe daily news so as to find patterns and limits. It helps keep you focused. It can actually help you improve your memory. It helps you save time and money. It liberates your mind from its inner dialogue. It becomes a treasured keepsake. So what do you write about? You can write about your career goals. If you want to be a comedian, for example, your journal might include a joke a day. A writer might jot down a plot twist for a novel or a script. A cook will note new recipes. A musician tracks tunes and lyrics. And an engineer keeps measurements and formula. I kept track of my questions about the deep wisdom that I found in nature. After I'd noted 50 interesting anecdotes from my observations, they were published in a book that is now in its second edition. The beauty of keeping notes is that they are private, like a personal mind mirror. And you choose when, what, and how to use it, and who can share in it. You choose what aspect of yourself you will develop. Write about how you can invest in your three forms of capital value, your structural capital, client capital, and creative capital. And remember that creative capital is more than just your ideas. It includes your use of other people's ideas, too. Before you start keeping your journal, consider another tool from my toolbox called abstract thinking. It's the perfect way to reconcile your inner dialogue. As you may know, that's the self-chatter produced by the two aspects of your perception, your knowledge of the world and your experience in the world. When these are in conflict, your inner dialogue keeps your worldview from collapsing into cognitive dissonance. If, for example, you inherited a racist view of the world, believing that other humans are somehow inferior to you, because you cannot experience that knowledge as an objective fact, your inner dialogue works very hard to maintain that racist view. And, as you get caught up listening to your own inner dialogue, you miss the on-ramp to nature's intelligent superhighway. As the inner dialogue feeds and reinforces your cognitive errors, you cannot see opportunities that exist outside of that closed-loop thinking. Abstract thinking can wear down the rigid definitions that divide your perception. Like the thinking technique put forward by Alex Osborne in 1952 and called brainstorming, it lets you toy with ideas as if abstract concepts so you more easily make innovative neural connections with data. While brainstorming is a good tool for groups because it helps them open the collective mind, abstract thinking is good for individuals that it helps us separate the known from the unknown. Along with keeping a journal, abstract thinking is a good way to practice detachment.
When you keep ideas at an abstract level, you can examine a problem in a way that Dr. Linus Pauling suggested is the key to being creative. When the two-time Nobel Prize winner was asked, Dr. Pauling, how do we get a good idea? He answered, you get a lot of ideas and throw out the bad ones. Most people fall prey to a rigid interpretation of words, meanings, and concepts. When you are too literal, self-criticism and deeper reflection are sabotage. Here are eight simple rules for getting into an abstract thinking mindset. One, use your notebook to record all your ideas. Two, suspend your judgment. Three, learn to formulate why and how questions. Four, alone or with others, generate as many answers as possible. Five, be disciplined so you write down every solution that comes to mind. Six, avoid analyzing answers as this only stifles the flow of thought. Seven, link ideas that are similar into patterns that fit together. Eight, draw out corresponding ideas that are inhibited by those patterns. Look behind the obvious. Nine, limits are contrary to the whole spirit of abstract thinking, so bring forth as many views as possible. Also, allow as much humor as possible to influence the process. This will help you transcend limits and inhibitions. As you become more proficient at keeping things abstract, you'll notice that you get into fewer arguments and drama-filled situations. When you allow others to reveal themselves without a critical judgment, you will more easily see their true colors. Journal keeping and abstract thinking are very empowering tools. I'll be right back with two more, so stay tuned. One of the most powerful tools I've found is a technique called lateral thinking. Based on the natural workings of the brain, it was developed by Dr. Edward de Bono, who called it Six Hats Thinking. Dr. de Bono wrote more than 80 books that were translated into 43 languages to teach how the brain self-organizes into six ways of perceiving. He used six colored hats to represent them. He found that the brain can, one, seek out information, two, assemble moods, three, formulate logical positive perceptions, four, formulate logical negative perceptions, five, imagine new potentials, and six, make pragmatic choices. This technique lets us change our mind or shift our thinking mode quickly and efficiently by changing hats. It also lets us direct others to change their thinking too, and this without offending them. For example, you can ask a person or a group to wear a specific hat and to thus see its suggested way. Or you can have people shift from one hat to another as they examine an issue, so they arrive at a variety of perspectives. Or you can indicate that you are going to explore an idea while wearing a specific hat. This tool helps you minimize resistance to ideas, concepts, or new directions. It lets you explore ideas from several angles in rapid succession and avoid overlooking any hidden aspects. It's also a great self-management tool because it lets you recognize how you are thinking 
so you can change hats and modify your perception. When I explain the technique to management groups, I'll introduce it as a way to move past disagreements that might come up during our discussions. I made a laminated handout that has pictures of six colored hats and a brief description of how each of them assembles what kind of information. To benefit from this technique, wear or have others wear each of six hats in succession and record the perceptions you arrive at wearing each of them. Groups can do it as a sort of modified brainstorming session. For example, the white hat surrenders to open-minded perception. When you wear this hat, we deal with data, facts, numbers of concern. It's all about the who, what, where, when, and why of an idea. We question the whole W5. As you question, you listen without judgment. You question ideas so as to force the unknown to become known. Then, red hat thinking draws out the emotional brain. What feelings or intuitions are triggered by this idea? You never have to justify these. Soliciting red hat thinking from people allows you to more easily identify potential positions, limits, and resistances to an idea before committing to a specific solution or direction. If only one person has a negative view, that should tell you that others may feel that way too. You can then plan a strategy to avoid any anticipated problems. The black hat thinking looks at logical negative view of things. Here you justify why an idea does not fit the facts, the rules, the culture, the system, the policy, or the laws. What can go wrong? Why will it fail? Explain how an idea is bad, why it won't work, what needs to be fixed, what to rethink. Black hat thinking predicts failure, but with the desire to prevent or fix problems before they occur. You'll note that many black hat perceptions really require white hat thinking because of unanswered questions or false assumptions. Don't disregard these ideas, but do treat them with the white hat first. To then see if they do prove to be negative, you can return them to the black hat list. The yellow hat allows you to express logical positive thinking, why the idea is a winner. Here you explore the benefits, advantages, and reasons why it should work. You tell why the idea should go ahead, who will profit, and how to prepare for the success or the promise. In the same way as black hat perceptions can hide white hat realities, we sometimes assume positive outcomes that are opinions and guesses. Assumptions and hypotheses should be tested with some white hat thinking. If they prove correct, you can be confident as you move forward. The green hat perception looks for alternatives and opinions so as to provoke creativity. Under the green hat, you open the discussion to off-the-wall suggestions and provocations. You search for innovative wow and future now ideas and potentials. You look for solutions to black hat problems and red hat challenges. Finally, the blue hat requires that you think about doings and not doings. Here you examine the steps needed to implement your idea. You figure out who can do what, where, when, how, and for how much. You become pragmatic by steering the idea to its next logical step. Or you let the dust settle for a time so you can sell the idea to others. Or creatively do nothing except let it incubate for a time. The lateral thinking techniques helps you generate a lot of variations on ideas 
in an orderly and detached way. It lets you see all the ideas so you can throw out the bad ones. If you become familiar with your brain's six self-organizing modalities, you can more easily see what hat other people are wearing. Rather than seeing conflict in a personal way, you can clearly see that so-and-so isn't negative. He is merely wearing his black hat. And if you were wearing yours, you'd see things in the same way that he does. Rather than react to fear or anger, you can see that others are only wearing a colored hat. If you react, it only exacerbates things. Try being a little bit more creative instead. Wear your white hat. Adding some white hat thinking to an emotional person's red hat changes everything by making it a little bit more pinkish, the color of healing. In the same way, don't let black and yellow hats clash. Add a little black hat to the yellow, or a little yellow to the black, and you'll end up with a golden hue. I recognize that some people only wear one hat and that it's screwed on real tight. As soon as you realize it, though, you can either plan a strategy to guide them into seeing that a reactive and non-flexible way of thinking is not to their advantage. Creator's intent is that we self-empower, and there are no exceptions to that rule. The fourth tool I recommend is called storyboard thinking. This is an outstanding management tool because it helps you take ideas to market. It lets you expose your idea to larger groups who can help you realize them, solve problems, or offer you directions and guidelines on how to advance with them. To understand what I mean by storyboarding, think about a comic strip where the cartoonist tells us a complete story in only four panels. The idea is to visualize your plans so you can chart your progress from start to finish. As an example of what I mean, to make his first feature film animation in 1928, Walt Disney used storyboards as an important tool. He kept track of a great numbers of images and scenes by having his artists pin their drawings on a studio wall. In this way, the progress can be charted, scenes could be easily added and discarded, and the whole production became alive and at a glance. Years before him, circa 1480, Leonardo da Vinci put his ideas on the walls of his studio to better explore them over periods of time. Storyboarding works particularly well with groups because when you put your thoughts into some sense of order, they begin to see the connections, to see how the various parts relate to each other and how the separate pieces come together into a whole. They can also see what might be missing, what might go wrong. As ideas start coming into shape, they take on a life of their own. People involved in a storyboard will become immersed in a scenario or a situation described as they work their way from panel to panel. Also, participants can hitch a ride on each other's contributions when they are presented, so the storyboard evolves unexpectedly but very creatively. There are five kinds of storyboard you can try. These are called one, idea boards, two, planning boards, three, organizational boards, four, creation boards, and five, communication boards. The first one, idea boards, lets people grow ideas by trading information in a continuous brainstorming style. Use a cork board or a large bulletin board, a whiteboard, an internet bulletin board, or even a dedicated wall. 
Idea boards can be created around any theme, but like a garden, they need to be nourished, cleaned, and changed regularly. Number two, planning boards lets you see a whole process, all the steps and the timelines involved with the project. Think of how you must plan a meal. You have to know what you're going to cook, the recipes, the ingredients available and what you must buy, exact measurements, techniques, cooking times. All of these assure that your meal turns out as desired. A strategy can be planned to every detail, but you must include the flexibility that allows all kinds of possibilities to be added or deleted from your planning board. I use a roll of shelf lining paper to plan my scenarios over long periods of time. I'll tape a length of several feet to a wall so it's at eye level. Then I'll draw a horizontal line midway on the whole length of the paper so it'll fit the number of days, weeks, or years that I'm planning for. I'll draw vertical lines to space out my target dates into time sequences and thus make time-space segments where I can note the anticipated circumstances and events in my plan. The details I'm certain about are noted above the horizontal line, while any variables, like my suppositions, hope, and expectations about the plan, will appear below the line. Tactics are color-coded and detailed on post-it notes. They'll go over the time-space segments. Whenever I wheel past that sheet of paper on my wall, I can see the potentials and strategies. Explore your own variations on this planning board technique, and you'll soon be amazed on how you can benefit from the constant overview. Number three, the organizational boards let you see who's who, what's what, and where's where, and who does what. Getting feedback from your collaborators is easy when your feedback process is structured in a way that lets you see exactly how the organization is organized. Presentation tools like PowerPoint and Excel can be used to present ideas in a logical way as they let you add simple details and visual cues. Number four, creation boards are like the wall used by Disney. Experiment with different media. Use colors, sounds, textures, forms that enhance the creative process. Use provocations and outside resources to spice up your mix. Explore organic ways that relationships come together and come undone, so a creation board helps you see transitions and next steps. They need discipline and regular follow-up, so people input the process in prescribed ways and with specific deadlines in mind. Number five, the communication boards allow a diversity of contributors to exchange ideas with limited instructions. Use large sheets of paper and post-it notes or an online bulletin board so people can log on 24-7. A sign-in web page or internet password designated for this purpose keeps everything open and yet relatively confidential. Ideas can be originated, commented on, and forwarded to all your collaborators in real time. Let me conclude by reasserting that we, all of Earth's citizens, are facing huge challenges, the COVID-19 pandemic being only one of them. In this latest crisis, already some pretty amazing innovations have been introduced. A full-spectrum UV light that controls the spread of airborne viruses in labs, hospital rooms, and closed settings a drone aircraft that can sanitize a whole stadium, or a 10-minute saliva test 
so we can see that creative thinkers are already hard at work. There are only two conditions for joining those leaders to take your place among them, want to and can do. You will most certainly want to as you acquire the courage to act. Physical courage lets you remove the obstacles you might be facing. Moral courage lets you choose your battleground. What wrongs can I make right? Social courage lets you choose your colleagues and alliances. And then creative courage frees you to invest in your capital value, your talents and abilities, your relationships, and your unique touch. With sufficient courage, you will get to live love your way. Can-do comes from mastering four tools. One, keep a journal to note your ideas and to help you set goals and track progress. Two, abstract thinking lets you avoid traps set up by your neurological paradigms, as these might sabotage you. Your filters, limits, and obstacles must be defeated. Rather than react to your brain's capacity to self-organize, my third tool is called Six Thinking Hats, and it lets you choose how to proceed. You can organize yourself to seek out information on any idea or to note what emotions are triggered by it, both yours and other people's. Then you can deal with them. Determine the logical negatives of an idea, its downsides and limits. What are the logical positives? Why will this idea succeed? What options and alternatives or what solutions can be imagined? How will you choose what strategy to employ? Bringing your ideas to market is easy with the fourth tool, storyboarding. Use this tool to plan your strategy. What will be done? By whom? Where, when, how, and for how much? We have a lot of work ahead, and so we'll need all the help we can get. I'll put the URL to these four strategic tools and many more with the description to this episode of the podcast. With the right tools, making a decision is simple, and choosing a winning strategy is even simpler. Just do what you love, and all the rest will follow. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again in episode 7, which is called Climbing the Leader Ladder. Do you know nature's evolutionary intent? Tune in next time and I'll fill you in on all the details. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Tell your friends about it and subscribe to this channel. If you didn't like it, write and tell me why not. If you want a transcript of this podcast, visit my website at www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks again. Until next time, adios. A Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.